Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm here as frequently as always. <laughs> as always. But, yeah. It feels like always lately because we're doing a run of yeah. just me and you episodes, man, uh, over the summer. Ross Ferguson. I'm here. How are as you, As always, most frequently. <laughs> <laughs> as frequently and as always. Yeah. Yeah, you reading anything good lately? Uh, currently, I'm reading uh, Baxter's um, Reform, Reform Pastor? Pastor, but I'm doing oh. the abridged version. Okay, um, so it was released, I think, a couple of years ago. I can't remember who the guy Better did late abridged. Than never, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> um, but the way he's abridged it is he's basically trying to keep um, original language, but just condense it down where Baxter's repeated himself. So I'm currently halfway through that. Uh, I did just read uh, Willie Still, William Still, okay. um, recommended by our own Dr. Beerig here at, yeah. at Midwestern Spurgeon College. Um, I'm trying to remember the title of it. It's based on his ministry in Scotland. So he served um, oh, in a church for 30 years, very well known for word-based ministry and visitation. So I'm doing a lot of reading on visitation at the minute. And uh, he basically talks about how he would visit his parishioners and how he would go to them and and what it means to be in ministry, which ultimately means to be in people's homes. Um, and it's a tiny little book, maybe 90 pages. But that was really encouraging, again, given a bit of background in Scotland. But as I say, I've also been reading a lot of visitation. I read uh, Lexham Press's new book on pastoral visitation, okay. just released. Uh, Is that in the Carousel series? The Carousel yeah. series. It released, I think, six months ago. Um, that's been really interesting. It's taking a Lutheran perspective um, of yeah. visitation. Um, so just trying to, uh, I'm reading a lot into it and, uh, different avenues and different so angles. a lot of beer, is that what, uh, I mean, what is a Lutheran? No, I mean, it, it was more like your parish is your whole community. I see. Your yeah. membership could be 2,000, but your church is only 200 people. So how do you engage with your community of parishioners? Mm. And um, what does it mean to visit, to take communion to people's homes? So again, yeah. different theology you know, there. I'm, I'm actually talking to them about doing a book in that series. The Care of Souls. Yeah, yeah. Mm. On uh, pastoral mentorship. Yeah. Um, there's nothing in stone yet, but yeah. we're in talks. I mean, it, it was it, it was a good book from a Lutheran perspective, but, yeah. but I struggled with it a little bit because uh, a lot of the visitation, I guess, suggestions were not something that would really fit. Oh, interesting. Uh, in, in where we go. And actually, there's a lot of things. So I highlight green when I like it and orange when I don't like it. And it just helps me kind of pull information in. And again, in Willie Still's book, there was a lot of green and uh, the pastoral <laughs> visitation. It was kind of a mix of both reform pastor, the, uh, the abridged version. It's a wonderful book. The original was a wonderful yeah, book, yeah, yeah. although long. Um, so I'm really enjoying it. It's part of research for a book I'm going to be writing. Really enjoying it. Also being really challenged about uh, Passover visitation. Someone recently said this. I thought this was fantastic little quote. How do you know that one of your flock is limping? Mm. Well, you know what they walk like normally. And so this is what I'm reading on is what does it look like to pastor a church when you know what their normal walk is and you know when they're limping? And mm. so these books, are, Willie Stills' book specifically was very, very good. Oh, good. Well, what awesome. about yourself? Well, I just finished uh, volume one of Michael Horton's Justification okay. book, yeah. and I've started volume two. It's good. I wish, you know, that I was more an academic. Okay. I know that sounds weird to say because I'm a professor at a seminary, but I teach pastoral ministry, <sighs> and 
yeah. So every fifth page that I understood was, was really good. <laughs> um, now, there's a lot of background and technical things that um, it, it was challenging. And, you know, good enough that I'm starting volume two. I yeah. certainly want to. And it's getting more, as he goes further in, it's more about contemporary challenges to the the reformed view of justification. So it's 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 opening up a little bit better yeah. for me. But I also just picked up Tom Schreiner's little book on justification, um, which comes out from that little series in Crossway. And I'm looking forward to that as well. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to put the cookies on the, yeah. on the medium shelf for me probably. <laughs> um, enjoyed that. Just finished Bono's biography okay. or autobiography. Memoir, I don't know what you call it. Surrender? Yeah. Or Songs of Surrender? I think it's called Surrender. Um, really good. Towards uh, towards the end, is more about his, like activism and things. Yeah, yeah. I was less interested in that than yeah. I was in— His actual story. In his like, actual story. Yeah. But you do get all of that from yeah. his childhood and his parents and falling in love and his wife. Yeah. And um, and then, of course, the band, you know, forming. All that was really, really do fascinating. Do you ever listen to, like, aud- audio books? No, never. We uh, we did uh, with the kids. We did Bonhoeffer, uh, which okay. was really interesting because yeah. a couple of our kids are really interested in history, and obviously there was a lot of kind of German history coming through, uh, and that that was really good. Eric Liddell, uh, the Scottish Olympian yeah. uh, that served the Lord in China, so we listened to that. But I've just got literally yesterday, okay, Doctor Barrett's new book. Oh, the Reformation as renewal. as renewal, the 900-page block. You got it an is. audiobook? No, 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 no. Oh. That was just the two audiobooks <laughs> that we were listening to. No, man, that'd be long. Yeah. Uh, but though the the book is hefty. It's, yeah, it's big. A chunk. Uh, I've been told it's not as, as academic as in it yeah, is academic it. because it's, all, it's, it's on my Barrett, list for sure. Yeah, so I've got. I keep looking in my mailbox thinking he's going to give me a copy, <laughs> but apparently it's such a behemoth. You got to. I mean, you're not just giving these things I away. Would, I wouldn't mail it out to you. That's what I would say. <laughs> well, he could just walk over. Yeah. I mean, his office. Well, is once right I've here. once I've read it in like three years, taken a Maybe page a day, it to me. I can lend it to you. The, the speaking of audiobooks, so Becky listens to audiobooks mm-hmm. nonstop, and she actually listened to the Bono okay um, audiobook, which he reads. Oh wow! And it has the music, so every chapter opens with, with lyrics from certain songs, oh, cool. and every. Every chapter is, I think, titled with different song lyrics, and they in the audiobook they play snippets from the from songs. Those. So I'm sure it was that would be a unique experience. But I, I I read that. Are your books on audiobooks? Most of them are. Yes. Do you read any of them? I used to. Okay. I do not anymore, and that's because the company that does them doesn't pay the authors anymore to do it. Oh, to actually read. Uh, yeah, isn't that weird? I remember getting the notice once. They're like, our policy is now not to pay authors who read their own books. That seems strange. Because I was like, if you got the effort, money budgeted, yeah, uh, you're paying somebody else to so do. They'll it. pay someone else. They'll but pay not someone the else, but not the author. That's strange. And I'm like, I'm spending three days in a studio reading until yeah. I'm hoarse, and you won't pay me for that. So that seems. Strange. I just thought, well, I'm not. Um, I'm not a massive fan of audio. I don't need books. to have my voice on there. Then if you're not going yeah. to shell out the ducats, I feel like the, I need to go to these older books of yours then and and yeah. see which ones. Yeah, I do uh, read the yeah some of the early ones. I even did um, uh, one of the books that I did with Matt Chandler, mm-hmm. which is actually his book, but I did the audio version yeah. for it, and that was really weird because it was, it was the marriage one. Yeah. So I'm talking about my and Lauren's relationship <laughs> and different things like that <laughs> in strange. the first person. That one was a little strange to do, um, yeah. but yeah, but they paid me for that, so yeah. that was good. Cool. Yeah, what's a mailbag episode today? Which we always seem to enjoy. Yeah, uh, and I hope the other listeners enjoy as well. Let's jump right in. This comes from Tanner, um, who's actually, he's got a couple appearances in today's mailbag, mm-hmm. um, actually. 
Tanner, you're killing it. Tanner's question coming from Facebook. He says, what are some markers that someone is ready to be a lead pastor yeah. in a church? This is a great question. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. What do you think? How do you so, know when someone's ready to be a lead pastor in a church? Can we just assume that they're probably currently a pastor and therefore already 1 Timothy 3 qualifications are met? I, I don't know if we can assume that. My first question was, are you qualified? So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was assuming it's somebody right fresh out of seminary. Oh, okay. Can so I, I go straight to be a lead pastor? I was somewhere? the opposite. I was like, you've got some experience. So how do you know you go to that lead pastor? Well, I think we're just starting in different places okay. because it depends on the context, yeah. the size of the church, yeah. the scope of the church. The reason I say, are you qualified is because yeah. if you meet the biblical qualifications right out of the gate, you could go be a lead pastor at a small church. I mean, you're you're yeah. working as a generalist. You get the basic stuff of caring for people, visitation, weddings, funerals, preaching every single week. That's manageable for someone who doesn't have an extensive experience yeah. in, a, in a smaller context. You say, no, you need training wheels before well, you I go was do kind that? of going from the perspective of lead pastor, you've had some experience. So how do you know when to take that step to, to leading a pastor on I your see. own? So I think at the minimum, what we're saying at the minimum starting place, wherever you're going from associate to lead or uh, seminary to lead, one Timothy three qualifications is your starting place. Yeah. But that's um, just two pastor. That's two pastor. Yeah. For me to lead pastor, it's one Timothy three characteristics that has been seen in church ministry already. So okay. basically experience, you're going to need some experience. So, so you're saying no one should start as a lead pastor anywhere. I did. I did too. And I'm saying I wasn't necessarily great oh, at Oh, that's it. not true. I was in student ministry so for a long time. I would say yeah. I, I wasn't great at it. Well, you had some ministry experience. Yeah. So I've been counseling guys just recently on campus that are leaving. They've done their undergrads. They've done their graduate. They, you know, they've graduated an MDiv. They're about to go into ministry. And they've actually never done ministry experience. They've worked in secular work. They've served on a couple of ministries at church, but they've yeah. never actually done it. I think... You can do that. It's tough. It's tough going to do it. And that's what I did. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Get some experience and show those 1 Timothy 3 characteristics as a proven record. As in, hey, yes, I'll come to your church as a lead pastor. For the last year, although I've been studying, I've been serving in my student ministry at the church I go to. And here's actually a reference from my pastors that say my 1 Timothy 3 characteristics have been on display yeah. in student ministry. So I guess I'm saying qualifications, yes, but where's the proof? And for me, the proof is inexperience. Well, how do you know? I mean, the qualifications are in some ways, well, not in some ways, they're affirmed by a community anyway. Like I'm not saying, when I say, are you qualified? I don't just mean by your own discernment. Well, yeah. But by your church, those who've mentored you, discipled you, are they affirming? I agree, you know, but it's You're that, not just called, you're not just qualified, but there's a sense of commissioning that yes. needs to take place. I guess well. what I'm saying is 1 Timothy 3 qualification, be hospitable. I'm saying not just be hospitable as a Christian, be hospitable in a ministry context. So whether that's serving yeah. in student ministry, your kids' ministry, whatever. One of the things for me is a simple love and care for the church. So I believe 50% of your job is going to be caring for the church through visitation, through active work with your members. If you don't genuinely love and care for the church, then you shouldn't be pastoring full stop. But to yeah. be a lead pastor, somebody that's kind of flying the flag first, if you will, and kind of stepping to free, you are the example that people will follow. 
So do you even love the church? And when you're interviewing for roles, and, and I've been on both sides, interviewing and inter being interviewed, this is one of the key things I look for and the key things I want to show as well, that I actually love the people of God. And yes, I love preaching. I love teaching. I love the idea of maybe growing a church and building and all this sort of stuff. But the core, if you're, I love preaching or I want a building project or I want to grow a new ministry or I want a church plant is more than I just love the people of God and I want to serve him by serving them. Yeah. I don't think you're ready yet. It can't just be, I want to be the guy in front. Agree. Um, yeah. But you have to want to be the guy in front with all that entails. Yes. Which means not just being the one who gets to speak every week yep. or the one who gets, you know, that kind of recognition, but you also have to be comfortable or at least willing to accept being the guy where the buck stops and Agreed. having to carry the the front line of criticism and the front line of questions and concerns and carrying the front line burden of whatever the church has to face when this is really tricky because there's so many variables. Yes, I agree. Which yeah. is why I wouldn't say a guy starting out, starting job, should be a lead pastor in a church of 600, 700, you know, yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. But I think you know you got to dive in at at some point. I think in a smaller context, you if you know you know not that you would treat it as a stepping stone, but I think that's okay because you can carry that weight as a beginning pastor, mm -hmm. a smaller church. As the church grows, you'll need you know. Do you have multiple elders? I mean, that's just, you know so many questions I want to ask. Yeah. Like, are, are you ready? Well, does the church have other pastors? Because that's an offsetting you know principle. Say they got three or four other elders, maybe even just lay elders. Going as a lead pastor to a small church that already has some other guys, that seems really advisable to me because there's other yeah. ones who can help you, you know. But if it's just like, oh, it's just the pastor, yeah, that's a little heavier task. You're going to have to be carrying the weight all by yourself yeah. of, of that of that role. So there's a lot of different variables, I think, involved that yeah. kind of give, that push me in a slightly different Coming out answer. of seminary, what I've often seen is guys know a lot, but yeah. don't actually know how to do it. Yeah, but um, I think they're, you're not even ready until you're doing it. But 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 that's actually <laughs> what I'm saying yeah. is that don't go for that. I'll train for eight years and then I'll do it. No, no, start doing it now yeah, in your training. Yeah. Um, just one guy I counseled recently, he had just finished his um, studies here on campus and he was looking for a kind of full-time job. And I was like, hey, here's a rural church. They're just looking for some cover, some interim as they're in the interview process. Go and help them. Go and learn what it means to preach week in, week out. It's not as easy as it sounds to just pull out a sermon every week. And he actually did it, I think, for nine weeks. And he said yeah. it was eye-opening to just steadily do Can that. I, if I could give a word of advice, I mean, it's one thing for this question to be generalized. How do you know when you're ready? Mm. The advice I would give, Tanner or anyone else listening, ask the people around you. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> Don't yeah. just assume because you want to do it or feel ready to do it, ask those. Ask your pastors. Ask those who have discipled you, mentored you. Those of those of who've walked close to you. Ask them. Mm -hmm. Do you think I'm ready to do this? And it doesn't mean that everyone's always right, and their word is is you know God's word to you. But they know you better than anybody else. And some there's some guys in my ministry past, guys that I that I've even helped train. Who've gone off? I wish they had asked me. Do you think I'm ready? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because in some cases I would say, "Man, I'm sorry I haven't told you yet." But yeah, full speed ahead, yeah. brother. I'm behind you. And then there's some guys I I I, I wish had asked, so wait, I could yeah. say, "I don't think so." Yeah, but they didn't seem interested yeah. necessarily in whether I thought they were ready or not. 
Um, yeah. And again, it doesn't mean that I'm right, but I think asking those who know you and those around you so I guess should be helpful. For this question, there's like lots of different things you can do. But if you're asking yourself the question, am I ready to be a lead pastor? If this is coming from a kind of first person, am I ready? Simply put, you need to press into that question more. And I think what we're also both saying is you're never going to be ready because yeah. you'll, you're well, going to be learning point, on the job. Is the point I make in gospel-driven ministry is you're, you're never ready until you're actually doing, doing it. it. Because you don't know who the people are. And until, even you know, when you're doing it, you're not ready. Because right. we both know it, there's stuff that comes up. You're like, whoa, I've never done this before. You don't know who you're being called to love. No. You know, uh, you know the only time I could see is maybe if you've been in a church for a while and you're becoming the lead pastor of that church. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you're going to a new place— you're usually, you know, you're ready to get ready, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah, all right. Okay, this, go, this comes from Jared on Twitter. And I know this brother. Uh, this isn't me. Okay. This is a different Jared. Sure. It's actually even spelled differently. Mine is the biblical spelling. I don't know where. But you pronounce it the same even though it's spelled the, differently. Yeah, I do. Maybe he pronounces his differently. I don't know. No, this comes from my friend Jared on Twitter. He says, how do pastors make decisions regarding participation in networks, cohorts, associations, conventions, et cetera, discerning with other churches' ministry involvement? So, mm-hmm. yeah, things outside of your own local church, other kind of networks, your mm-hmm. association, those sorts of things, parachurch type deals. How do you know how to be involved in that? Yeah, I've had quite a lot of experience with this, actually, because I've been in different types of churches and different issues, it really usually boiled down to two things for me. What does the other church or organization believe and what do they do in practice? And what I'm specifically talking about is we can disagree on second, third tier issues in terms of things that are not salvific, that are actually, um, you know, their style of worship or their style of, you know, evangelism, whatever. But do we believe the same on the fundamentals? Do we believe the gospel? Yeah. Do we believe um, in the same Christ? Do we believe that in practice as in we actually show that? And that's that's a big thing. Churches can say, oh, yeah, 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 we're, we're the same. We're, you know, we believe in the gospel. But in practice, it's a very different thing. And so I've had a couple of different situations in the UK. It's called Churches Together. I don't know if there's a similar organization here, but they would often join together on Good Friday services, Easter services, uh, community-based things. And actually in one church, uh, we pulled out of churches together for Good Friday. It was the Catholic Church, the Church of England, a Pentecostal church, a charismatic church, and then ourselves. And I found it very difficult to actually get on the same page with people who fundamentally didn't believe the gospel, yeah. both in belief and in practice. And I'll be really honest with you, we were not loved as a church for pulling out of that churches together. We were actually very much accused of hating our community, of being holier than thou type situation. But I felt like you can't really truly partner with somebody if you don't fundamentally believe the same thing. Yeah, I, I would almost phrase it like this. It's like a marriage. When you make those vows together, that's what you're saying. Fundamentally, at core, we're going to hold this together ourselves. Now you disagree on maybe where your kids might go to school or where you might live, but at core, those vows are, are the things that are holding you together. And I'm just not even talking about Christian marriage. I'm just kind of saying just those vows. Yeah, That's kind of the same in church ministry. What is the core that holds you together? The rest you can disagree on and things like that. But if you don't have that core personally, it's hard. You might not be loved for it, but I wouldn't join in, in parachurch ministries or other church ministry if that core is not the same. Yeah, I think there's levels of 
messaging that you can find common ground. So like it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to join hands with a church that believed fundamentally or an organization that believed fundamentally different things than you in some sort of evangelistic crusade. Yes. Or even a spiritual theological conference of some kind. We're going to put on a conference and everything. Well, who's going to be the speaker? Well, we like this guy. Well, that guy's a little heretic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's hard to do that. And and even outreach type Mm -hmm. events because you have just a different starting point on so much. Could you both do neighborhood beautification type things together? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you could do things yeah. like that. You know, homeless shelter and yeah. the food pantry. You know, you could do those sorts of things perhaps. Now, once you get down to the granular level of communication, you know, you may find things become more difficult because you've got different messages perhaps. Yeah. I even think of just like co-belligerent, you know, co-belligerents, you know, protesting a, yeah. an abortion clinic or different things like that. Protestants and Catholics do that. Yeah. They would not share the same space yeah. because they don't share the same convictions on yeah. things that involve specific theological messaging. But they both stand against abortion. Yeah. So, therefore, we can be on the picket line together, right? Yeah. There's, you know, against pornography. There's, there's, there's things like that that we just, you know, there's shades of discernment, different contexts that can mm. may determine, hey, we could stand together against this thing. But once we get down to the granular level of what's the message, what's yeah. the positive alternative— we may actually need to part ways on that. I wonder if Jared is speaking less about those sorts of things, though, than more just like, how involved should I be in the local Baptist association? How yeah. involved should I be in this church planting cohort? How many? And so the questions I have are a little more practical. Okay. So let's assume theologically you're all on the same page. It's just this is extra. Extra work. Extra on top stuff. Of what That's what yeah. I want to ask is, first of all, yep. how does it benefit the church, like my church? Is this is this a, is there a clear benefit to my people? It's going to help my people in some way, even if it helps them get more active mm. helping others. But there's a benefit to them, or is it just a thing that I want to be a part of because yeah. I feel like I'm involved and engaged, and it's something that's happening and I, that makes me feel good. That's the other question: is like how much time away from your church is your involvement going yeah. to? That's a really good. You question. know, is this going to take you into like is this you know, meetings or is, is, you know, and your engagement, your level of participation mm-hmm. is it, and, and it's okay for pastors to be involved in things that are about encouragement for them or, you know, go to a pastor's conference and different things like that. But that's but not if partnership. The, that's more attendance. That's right. But if, yeah, if your level of in, involvement, even if it's just for your own encouragement, is in such a way that it's taking you away yeah. from meaningful ministry locally, that's where you need to pause. Yeah. So you know. this really brings up an interesting example. So in uh, Scotland, East, there was such a thing called the East of Scotland Gospel Partnership. And it was basically gospel-centered churches coming together. And originally, it was to kind of spur one another on. And they brought in speakers, uh, yeah. Kevin DeYoung, Matt Chandler, they came over and did it. And, you know, a thousand people would gather and we would have this conference once a year. And then there'd be a little spurs that kind of come off. It felt more like attendance but it was a gospel partnership that was trying to be produced. So they switched away from the attendance conference to church planting in the east of Scotland. Interestingly, numbers massively dropped down to like 100. But that produced like a cohort of guys that were like, we're going to partner together in this. They did pulpit exchanges. They looked at viability of church planting in the area, looked at older buildings, and, and almost more got done with less people because it became less about the attendance and more about mm. the partnership. And they agreed on the core, gospel-centered churches 
reaching the lost. So there's that partnership. On the flip side, uh, I'm reminded of another example. Uh, Again, in North Dakota, there was uh, seven churches, uh, all very different denominations. They had a minister's cohort that came together once a month for breakfast. And the churches never really did anything together because we didn't really believe in core stuff together. But we as ministers would come together and have breakfast together. Now, it might cause people concern, but egalitarians and complementarians ate at that same table. There was female ministers and male ministers. Now, I'm not going into the theology of it. I'm going into this perspective of, I can have breakfast. Yeah. Absolutely. And we would talk about the local community and what they're struggling with. And then we would go to our churches and we would do the work. So I, I think that's a really good point you've raised off. There is levels of what you can do. Um, sometimes it's just going to be for you, for attendance, to be encouraged. Sometimes it's just a breakfast. Other times you're going to be asking your church to put their hands in their pockets and church plant into a tough area. But yeah. I guess what I would say is if anything's heretical, avoid, avoid, avoid. But the leveling might be an interesting thing of, do you really need your whole church to partner with it? Or is it just that you should attend because it would be encouraging to you? Yeah, I think, you know, the word of caution I would have, you know, the second part of Jared's question is sort of how do you discern ministry involvement with other churches? Mm. And and I don't know. I mean, there's just, it's, it, it's so complex. Does it advance the kingdom of God? Is there a benefit to your local church? There's so many benefits to doing things with other churches, a sense of unity, of experiencing the kingdom of God, of, uh, of fellowship, the fraternity. In some contexts, like in the New England context where I previously ministered, we try to do as much with other churches as we could because Christians are such a minority there. Yeah. It's encouraging to see what God is doing in other churches. The caution I would have is to guard against if, – if the apprehension is about a sense of competition, yeah. if I do things with other churches, people are going to see, you know, they'll like that church better and I'm going to lose people or that sort yeah. of thing. You, you need to kind of let go of that. Absolutely. And I'm not assuming that Jared has that mentality, but if, you know, for you know anyone listening, if that's a concern – you need to have a, a kingdom mentality. Don't mm-hmm. let your need to hoard people or just yeah. a consumeristic kind of build your own kingdom mentality yeah. keep you from partnering with other churches if that's yeah. the thing that's keeping you yeah. from you know from like-minded I churches. Mean, uh, in my previous context, uh, Lincoln Baptist Church, we would partner with TCM, Thomas Cooper Memorial uh, Baptist Church. We would partner together, two separate sides of the city. Uh, we would come together and do a joint service every couple of months. Um, the two pastors, me and, and the pastor that was serving there, we would take a talk and we would split it to 20 minutes. So we would both get to speak and we would chop and change between each other's church. And the same thing we would say every single time. We don't mind if you come to Lincoln Baptist or TCM. We just care that you come to church and be part of God's family and, and fellowship with together. It was really great to do that. Really great, but it didn't go beyond that. We, we kind of just did a joint encouraging service together. Sunday evening, it wasn't meant to be, you know, invite friends. It was invite the two churches together. And I believe they still do a joint men's breakfast together, even, you know, a year or so after I went. And again, it's just that basic partnership with no competition. It is actually a beautiful thing when you get rid of that competition. It's good. Okay. Britain on Facebook says, in what ways can the church not only serve persons and families with disabilities, how can the church grow in its ability to disciple persons with disability Mm. for service alongside the whole body? So the question about discipleship of persons with disabilities. Yeah. The first thing I would say is, you have to you have to care. Absolutely. <laughs> it has to be something that you care about. And the beginning place is to see Jesus' heart for the disabled. 
his heart of compassion mm-hmm. to see that he prioritized that. It wasn't yes. just sort of an off-handed thing for him or a marginal thing for him, but he prioritized reaching to people in 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 the margins, including those who were sick, including you know lepers and and so on. So I think the first thing is a lot of churches they they um, I hate to use the word ableist because it's such a modern therapy speak term, but we begin with the default of what's normal. Mm-hmm. So if you want to call that ableism, I guess you could call it ableism. But we begin with what's normal, and so we only look through the lens yeah. for those who are are able, are you know quote unquote our sense of normal. And we don't even think to look through the mm-hmm. eyes of someone. And it usually takes a disabled person or persons yeah. in your church to kind of meekly raise a hand and go, yeah. it's really hard to navigate this space because, yeah. of, you know, either physically, you know, oftentimes physically, yeah. but sometimes emotionally because yeah. of how things are. And I think that's you know. the important thing to see here is uh, disabilities can come in so many different forms. Right. Um, from a physical perspective, our, our Dr. Harrison uh, who was a professor here. I think he still does some teaching here. Uh, his wife was in a wheelchair after a broken leg, uh, I believe, and they just tested the church out and suddenly realized their church is not good at all for yeah. anyone with a physical disability, so made major changes. And in some senses, I'm going to say that helping, encouraging, discipling those with physical disabilities, I would argue, is easier and I think it would come more naturally to some people. Uh, just an example, in my previous church, we had a lady who was in a wheelchair and she we, we encouraged her to be part of the welcoming team. And she was always at the door and her husband was with her. Her husband would open the door. She would do the welcome, give out the bulletin. You know, she was fantastic. You know, no, no issues there. And I think in some senses, a physical disability brings a physical response. But what about disabilities that are not necessarily physical, mm-hmm. not necessarily easily resolved by just changing a few seats or a door? And I think that's where, again, care and compassion comes in to the perspective of Philippines 2, considering others, putting others' needs before yourselves. So thinking in a very different way, and that will come naturally to some people. And we know there's different giftings in a church. Some people will be actually actively gifted to work with those with disabilities. For others, you're going to have to get some training or even challenge yourself to think in a different way. Uh, but here's my kind of one, how to encourage and disciple them to be involved in ministry, partner with them, partner in some form of way. So if it's a physical disability and they're on welcoming, have somebody partner with them that might be able to yeah. um, deal with those physical difficulties. If it's, so for instance, I know somebody in a church years ago, uh, he has Down syndrome, he's in his 20s now, but through his teen years, uh, he would sit with somebody on the sound desk and on AV and and just in terms of ability, he was able to, you know, click the button to change the screens and to know which mics and to hand mics over. And he was treated with great respect and love and care. And actually now knows how to use the sound desk in AV and can teach other people. The disability didn't even come into it apart from, okay, how can we best serve you do it? It wasn't, oh, you're disabled, you can't do this. Right. It was you're disabled, okay, so how can we help you do this? And it took a couple of people to partner with him. So for me, it's a big partnership thing. Bring people, and I think all ministries like that, yeah. bring people alongside it. But one of the things I would say is physical disability usually has obvious answers to them. Non-physical disability are the ones that you have to really think about. That's going to take active work, energy, training. Yeah, I think identifying, you know, again, beginning with if you care, identifying those who are gifted and called to these specific 
kinds of ministries and then giving them authorization oh, yeah. Yeah. and responsibility to minister in that way. Because they're seeing now through the different lens, you think of something like how the service itself may impact, you know, certain disabilities. So if there's lots of, you know, if you're in a church that does sort of uh, big production and there's lots of flashing lights mm-hmm. or that's the music's very loud, that can be overstimulating yeah. for, you know, neurodivergent you yeah. know, folks. And maybe there needs to be a separate space that yeah. allows them to receive the content of the service per se, but is out of such an overstimulating, what can feel oppressive, or maybe vice versa. Just someone who's got the eyes, who's trained or at least insightful, intuitive enough that they have the eyes to see it through, you know, that through the disabled lens and can make accommodations, reasonable accommodations for others so that they can feel as close and participating as possible. Maybe there's things you can do to be mindful that will help parents who have children who need extra help in service situations. You know, I know that there are churches that have entire, you know, disabled ministries and classes, and they have specific teachers who are trained and who, you know, appear to be gifted in these ways. Which means Um, you need to talk with them. And I think that's one of the things that over the years in ministry I've found is I used to be kind of nervous about that of like, am I allowed to ask you the question? Uh, You know, you have a disability. How can, how can I help? Yeah. But sometimes having that just awkward, loving, caring conversation of, I'm really sorry. I don't know if this is insensitive. I don't quite know how to ask this, but I want to serve you best in church. How can I help you? Is, is there yeah. anything we're doing that is jarring for your disability? Is there anything we um, We did a youth ministry and we actually had a couple of uh, folks that were hearing impaired and we actually got someone, we paid someone to come and do sign language for the entire youth service. Yeah. Um, we just, we asked the question and we were prepared to do the resource that was needed. So you know, it cost us money, but we were prepared to do that. Yeah. Do you have, you know, ASL, you know, those who know yeah. ASL, those sorts of things available. I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that for yeah. our church. Like if someone showed up on a Sunday, you know, and, and is, you know, hard of hearing or deaf, and would we be able to have an interpreter for yeah. them? Is there someone in the church? Surely someone would volunteer, but it's not a regular thing. And no. I, you know, think of this, there's a brother I've met a couple of times. He's one of the moderators in the Baptist Review. His name is Stephen Newell. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's a deaf brother. And this is a huge passion for him as well. And I think of this every time someone posts a video or yeah. something on, on social media. And I don't, you know, usually turn the sound on anyway. So I don't often think, even think in this way. But he'll say, there's no captions. Yeah. Right? Like, so this is just silent, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, think of, you know, the yeah. deaf and think yeah. of those who just have other, you yeah. know, issues. They have no idea what's being said. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think, oh, man, that like, yes, yeah. that we <laughs> not even thinking on this level, conferences, other yeah. events, like, what do you do for those who are not able to to understand and, and or who can't hear? So just having someone who's dedicated to this and you've given yeah. them kind of the authorization. Yeah. I think one of the major things I would say, and, and I feel relatively strongly about this, I know there's there's been real negative situations. Disabilities are not something to go to the parents or to go to the individual and say, you must have done something wrong in your life. You, you know, this is not right. This is evil or anything like that. Look at Christ and look how he interacts with people. The level of compassion he showed individuals who were in some form of way not able or would struggle was off the scale. And I think in churches, we need to remember that. 
And that means new resources, that means finances, that means coming alongside them, that means training, developing. That means seeing their intrinsic value before Christ, which is that is an individual God made in the image of him. And that, that should spur us on to, as you were saying, if somebody needs ASL, to actually go and find it. So right. that we can serve them. I think also, though, I, I made a note, at least, you know, to be honest about our limitations. Yeah. However, what, what I find fascinating is typically smaller churches have fewer resources for these sorts of things and yet tend to do these sorts of things better. Yep. I think because there's more personal yeah. interaction and personal involvement, larger churches tend to have more resources that mm-hmm. they could devote. But seem to be more sort of no. This is just for the normies, you know, kind of. Because the percentage is different. If it's fifty people in attendance and two people have a disability, you'll do something with them. But if you've got four hundred people and it's just two, it's like, well, we don't really have that. This church, you could maybe go to this church. Yeah, maybe that's the thing. I think you know, seeing someone as an as an image bearer doesn't necessarily mean you have to do the impossible for them. It could mean being kingdom minded to you know. So I'm thinking of. Um, and you, you need to be sensitive with this or tender with this, but there's a friend of mine who he visited another, another church. He has an um, autistic son who mm-hmm. needs a lot of care and a lot of attention in, in different ways. And so he attended another friend of mine's new church, a church plant, and he attended with his son, and he went to the pastor and said, is there a class for my son where he would get specialized you know, help? And And the pastor said to him, no, we we don't we don't have that. But I know there's a church down the road that mm-hmm. you know has a class that you know such and such. Now a lot of people would be like oh, they're turning you know yeah. us away and uh, maybe would be very offended by that. Like you don't want me at your you know at yeah. your church or you're not going to care for my son. And but my my friend who has the autistic son mm-hmm. said I was very encouraged by that and yeah. I actually felt cared for because he wasn't trying to say oh we'll figure something out yeah. um, to make me happy. What he said was, you probably would be best served in this location. as a church. Yeah. So he didn't feel like he was being thrown away. He felt like that he was actually trying to be yeah. helpful and thought if your son needs yeah. that sort of care, we, we just we don't have that ability yeah. right now. And so the honesty he found really r- refreshing. He didn't feel dismissed. Again, mileage may vary, you know, yeah. based on your experience. But I think, you know, having a heart for the person doesn't necessarily mean yeah trying to kind of duct tape something together for them. It means what's the best for this person? But over time, we don't want churches just to be like, oh yeah, that church has got it. That's right. Over time. They're the ones who do that. Yeah, it's fine if you're in early stages or you've never uh, engaged with it before, but you want to be over time developing. If you have the resources. And if you've got people resources, I guarantee you there are tenderhearted people in your church who have a calling and a giftedness for this and experience with this. And maybe they just don't know yeah. that this, you know, you're looking yeah. for this kind of thing. I mean, my wife uh, has experience of uh, coming alongside autistic children and actually uh, working with them in schools. Mm. She wouldn't put her hand up and say that that's her ministry in church because maybe you don't have any autistic children in your church. But if one does come to your church, yeah, like my wife can do that. And it's that kind of thing of just, as you say, talk to your people, see what actually experience they have. Don't go, here's our 10 ministries, sign up for one. It's a, Here's our 10 ministries. Does anybody else have any skills in these areas? Because we haven't really developed them and we would love to do it in the future. Yeah, just talk to people about it. That's good. All right, here's Wyatt on Twitter. Wyatt asks, what should a pastor do when he is considering leaving his current church to go pastor somewhere else? Does he tell anyone in the congregation? 
If so, when and how soon into the process of looking at other churches? My answer is pretty short, uh, which is not like you announce this in the in, in the pulpit. Hey, by the way, I'm a little, you know, uh, I'm tired of you folks. I'm looking for someone else. <laughs> um, but I would say, yes, you do tell someone in the congregation, probably other elders or key leaders, maybe if you're the solo pastor, but when it gets serious enough that you're active, not just you're feeling a little discontent, that's a different kind of feeling. I think you can share that with others. But if you're thinking like, oh, I think maybe I shouldn't pastor here, you don't want people around you to panic if it's just this is a season of mm-hmm. feeling kind of low or it's just a down season. But if it's become serious enough that you're beginning to look at other places and it's a decision that you've made informally in your own mind, I'm going to leave. I think you need to bring other key leaders in so that they're not ambushed by this sudden announcement later. Now, it doesn't mean you need to tell the congregation right away, but having those close to you know, including if you have like really close friends, because that's just part of being human and community. Yeah. You know, I know it can be jarring for a church. It can be distressing for a church, but I guess I don't understand why we would totally need to be confidential with this 100% of the time in every situation. Um, I, I mean, I can think of, I guess, reasons why you could in certain situations. But I mean, I'm thinking of like when we, you know, when I was thinking about leaving our last church, I wasn't actively looking. I wasn't sending r- resumes out. I wasn't even perusing job boards. But I realized it was serious when my wife and I, independently of each other, were feeling hmm. like this season's coming to an end. And when we both realized that, we thought, oh, like this is something the Lord's doing in us. It's yeah. not just. And this was after years of kind of a low, low capacity for me or just kind of burnout, you know, sort of experience. The ministry was going well. I mean, the church was growing, which I was, you know, disorienting for people to hear because nobody leaves when the church is going well, right? But when I realized like, oh, she's feeling the same way and we were both kind of afraid to say that and now we've expressed it to each other, I talked to my fellow elders Mm. because I wanted them to know where I was emotionally. Yeah. That's what I thought a pastor should do. And it wasn't me going, hey, I'm leaving. It was, we're starting to think this way, feel this way. Mm -hmm. I want you guys to know so you can pray for us if you have wisdom for us. And then later when it was, oh, we're actually making the decision to go to Kansas City, they were not, you know, they were disappointed, but they weren't shocked. They didn't feel ambushed by it because they had already been brought into my interior life in an appropriate way. I've done both ways. Yeah, I've kept it very secret. It did not go well. Yeah. And that was coming back from my recruitment days before. You don't tell anyone you're moving jobs in the corporate world because that might, you know, jeopardize it. You might get fired or whatever. It didn't go well. It, f- it felt like I had betrayed the church. Yeah, I felt I would betrayed the church. They felt betrayed. I've done it where the whole church was aware that I was looking and thinking, and that didn't go particularly well because it became a gossip point or wherever I went. I would uh, completely agree with your advice. When it's more than just an emotion... And actually, it is something you're actively doing. Tell your kind of right-hand man, your, your your closest confidant within the eldership and maybe even the whole eldership. Uh, when I left my last church, that's exactly what we did. When it came to actually making the decision, we called the whole elders in. We had a whole conversation. We then agreed that we would then want to tell the church after that. And actually, the statement that we read out to the church included, we felt this six months ago. We shared it with this chair of deacons. We then shared it with the elders. We're now coming to you because we've been on this journey. And actually when the church heard that, they could see this was not just a whim. This was not just an emotion. This was not running away. 
this has been planned out. Yeah. The only other thing I would say on this, because I fully agree with your advice, I know somebody who's uh, retiring from the ministry. Um, he's retiring in two years, but two years ago, when he was four years out from retirement, he made an announcement to the church saying, I will be retiring in four yeah, years good. time. We will be in a process. We have an associate. We're going to be working with him. We will be in a process of that change of ministry, but I want you to know on this date in four years time, I will retire from the ministry. And a wonderful message because it was like, and the ministry will continue because this is not about me. So I think if you are coming towards more retirement or even leaving ministry completely and you want to give plenty of time, don't be scared to share that with your church. Let them know in a future date, it will continue and it will continue long beyond I've gone. But just so you know, in a couple of years time, I'll be done. That's different from changing to another church. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I agree with your advice. I mean, embedded in Wyatt's question is sort of when would you tell the congregation? I wouldn't tell a congregation until you know you're going someplace you've, else. You've been offered and accepted. That's yeah. right. And the win of that would be not so so far in advance that you become kind of lame, you know. A lame duck. A lame duck. Yeah. Uh, but not so quick that you don't give people time to process yeah. and say their goodbyes. I, I think probably a month yep, is probably a good yep. amount of time to make that announcement. And that gives people, you know, four weeks or so. Um, okay, Jonathan on Twitter and then Tanner again. Welcome back, Tanner. On Facebook, both had the same question. Mm-hmm. Would love to hear our thoughts on patriotic services. This is coming out way, you know, well past July 4th, but uh-huh. the day of recording is two days after July 4th. Uh-huh. So it's fresh on everyone's mind. I think I could guess your thoughts <laughs> on patriotic services, Mr. Scotsman. So I'll, I'll let, but I'm going to let you go first. I have an answer. Yeah. And I have a caveat. Oh, okay. Okay. So here's my answer 100% absolutely don't do them. <laughs> you okay? 100% absolutely no. Uh, I'm dead against them. Here's my caveat there are ways that you can honor your country, your armed forces, and various things in your services. You know, this Sunday, we're going to be praying for our government. This Sunday, we want to uh, pray for our nation. This Sunday, we're having a minute of silence for our armed forces. There's various things you can do to honor your country and, and those in it that does not require patriotic service. And here's my reason for the absolutely not. As Christians, there is no higher flag, no higher entity, no higher person than Christ Jesus. A patriotic service has a danger to knock him off the top space. I would go further. I think it, well, or you, it can't, does. you can't ever really knock God off the top space, yeah. but that's what it does in the yeah. hearts and minds of the, that the reason you have gathered now yeah. is to put an idol in front. Yeah. I, I think it's a commandment violation. Yeah. Um, first commandment you know, violation. I would stretch even further. Okay. I would have no flags in the church so, building. So, my caveat is levels to this. Oh, okay. So American flag in the sanctuary? I'm a no. I, I'm not a fan. Yep. But it, to me, it's not, let's go to war over this. No. It's, I'm not a fan. If I have the opportunity, I'm going to take it out. Agree. If it's there, you're a new pa- Like I'm giving advice to a guy like, hey, man, I just got to the church, the American flag. I'm like, hey, man, that's maybe a year three, year four, yeah. year five. It's not day one. I wouldn't put that on priority <laughs> one. I'm not a fan. Yeah. Singing a patriotic song in the service. It makes me really uncomfortable. This is the next level up. Yeah. Not only am I not a fan, it makes me really uncomfortable. Who? Yeah. What are we worshiping? Yeah. Why are we, you know, yeah. 
patriotic service, which is what these guys are asking about. Yeah. To me, that's level three. You're right. No way. Yeah. And I'm not doing it. Political service. All, all of those. Yeah. Just we've got the awesome. vice president's coming in to yeah. speak instead, or we've got this yeah. senator who's going to come give us a, a stump a- speech, yeah. you know. Absolutely not. Christ is the message we have. Nothing more and nothing less. Can I caveat this a little bit again? Obviously, I'm international coming into yeah, the yeah. States. So I've been to a church where I couldn't see the words to sing because there were so many American flags in the way. And I'm not even kidding. There was multiple yeah. flags. I went to a church. Uh, this is pulpit supply and different things I've been doing. I went to one church where they had American flag memorabilia on the communion table. It's like they went to Hobby Lobby and put yeah. all the American yeah. stuff on the communion table. Yeah. Here's a few things. One, as an international, I feel completely unwelcome. And in God's church, this is huge. that yeah, should not going. be the case. Yeah. It should be the case where everyone feels welcome. Now you can say, well, it was my choice to come here. But let me tell you this, God's church everywhere in the world is an open door policy. Yeah. Anyone can come in and hear the, the love of Christ. So that's my first thing. My second thing is I have a German friend who has said that last time he noted flags in a church was actually in the Nazi era where they would put flags in the church and uh, Hitler's big thing was to actually infiltrate the church. And that's where the confessing church came out, the, the gospel-believing church that Bonhoeffer was part of. And actually for him to come to the States and to see an American flag actually has those memories of, well, the last time I saw this oh, was in, in the German history. Now, I'm not saying that's what's happening in America. I'm saying don't assume that an American flag is an innocent thing or a proud thing in your country. There has been abuses of that around the world. And then my last point is simply this. When I come to a church, I hold firmly that I'm there for Christ and for his people. I literally couldn't care less what country you came from (laughs) because I care more about your soul. I'm sort of of the mind, like if you're going to have an American flag in prominent display, you should have like the flag of every nation. Yeah, put them all around your church. uh, The church is made up of every country, nation. (laughs) But of course, the only churches that really do that tend to be the more like Pentecostal. Yeah. <laughs> Start waving, and, and nobody wants to look like that, you know. Uh, but I'm like, well, at least go all out and yeah. show every tribe that you can, every yeah. nation that you can, because that's the body of Christ is made up yeah. of all of the nations. Again, not a fan of the American flag in the in, in sanctuary. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't animate me. Yeah. I guess. But there's increasing levels of concern. If yeah. you, the question is patriotic services. I'm thinking there's only one reason you would do that, yeah. and that's to to be a consumer product yeah. for those who desire that more than they desire yeah. to focus on Christ. Yeah, it's a it's a seeker sensitive type yeah. approach to things. It's but in a very specific way, and uh, and I and and just as idolatrous as yeah. having some kind of you know Broadway production yeah. type thing that has no focus on Christ. Either. No, no national anthem, no pledge of allegiance, uh, none of that in the church. The church is Christ, and that and, and that is what we look at. I know we're going to lose his, listeners his on this kingdom one. Kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, yeah. we're going to get some negative reviews. I'm sure we will for your boy next door charm on this one. <laughs> uh, last question comes from another Jared, spelled biblically. This is not me, also, but it is Jared who's yeah, spelled the right way. All pronounced the same way. That's right. Jared on Facebook says, "What is the most difficult book?" of the Bible to preach, uh, to preach through. I thought we would just reframe the question. What's the hardest book you have I was going to say that. You can only comment on this if you've actually preached through it. Yeah, if you've actually preached through it. So two things. My guess would be, I haven't preached through the book. I've done passages, but I've never preached through Revelation. Uh, That seems like the knee-jerk answer. Like that's the most difficult because it has so many people who are expecting different things. That'll sound a little bit arrogant, but I haven't necessarily found it difficult 
to preach through any books of the Bible. And, oh my word! Okay, and, and, and I guess, <laughs> well, I guess it's like you know, there's difficult passages, but yeah. that's part of your role is to delve into that. So I love going verse by verse. If I was to be pressed on it, I would say I went through Genesis. It was a little tricky to keep the momentum. There was times I was kind of like, okay. we're, we're, oh, here's this story you know, creation. Here's Cain and Abel. Here's Noah. Here's Joseph. And you're kind of like, yeah, but there's bits in between. And sometimes it's just kind of hard to keep the momentum oh, going. Okay. So I find the chop and change between stories just hard to kind of keep the interest of the church in. I don't know. I, so don't... I love preaching through Genesis. Did not have that experience with Genesis. Okay. But Exodus is what I wrote down, okay. particularly Second chapters half. 25 yeah. to 30 yeah, and the thereabouts, seconds. where every chapter feels the same as the measurements yeah. of the tabernacle and sanctuary and the establishment of the priesthood. And, the, and it's like, this needs to be this length and this width mm. and this. And, 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 and I can figure out what to do with that yeah. one or two times. But like seven Five times? chapters in, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm basically, I don't, I don't yeah. have another move with this, yeah. you know, Jesus or, you know. God is holy, therefore he requires perfection. And that's yeah. why things are going to be exact. He's a God of the details. Yeah. Do I say that again next week? Do I say that yeah. again? You know, it, I just found that difficult. It wasn't yeah. impossible. It just, that to me, out of everything yeah. that I've ever preached through, I, that was probably the most challenging. I found Jude uh, oh, a little yeah. bit challenging. Okay. Um, not because of difficulty to know what to say, yeah, yeah. but because you know what you're saying. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the waterless cloud, that cloud yeah. that's twice dead, you know. <laughs> when you know yeah. what you're trying to get across. I think that's tricky just because of content, what you're trying to say. Yeah, I, I, just honestly, I just don't particularly find it tough. And and I think it's just because I, I, love, I love preaching through God's word. Yeah. I think, yes, there's going to be passages, as you say, there's five chapters there. You're like, oof, you know, what am I going to do with this? I think this? there's but, prophetic books. I've never preached through Isaiah or Jeremiah. I've done passages, but yeah. I've never preached through... Uh, a I mean, major prophetic book. I, I what about Leviticus? See, numbers? I haven't preached those either. Uh, I, I, I could see just the, some of the repetition, some of the... Um, judgment, damnation. challenging, yeah. you know, um, or just the language of like having to do interpretive work when people a lot of times have yeah. different assumptions about things. That's why I thought Revelation may be one of those... Um, as well, maybe may challenging. But for me personally, yeah. Exodus was was probably the most challenging. I just did Dr. Madsen's class on New Testament, and he went through Revelation. Uh, just a stunning job he did. It wow. was really incredible. He was like, this is not what it means. This is the way you should look at it. Here we go. That's good. Four weeks in a row. It, unbelievable. So again, awesome. where you may struggle with that, someone else loves it. And that's why I was like, yeah. very subjective. Gotcha. First 10 chapters of Genesis, second half of Exodus. That's what we're saying. <laughs> Well, okay, your homework before our next recording session is to see the new Indiana Jones. Okay. And then we'll, we'll, we'll revisit. We'll revisit. Yeah, you got that. probably about a month, so. Okay, right, and then cool. We'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, your listener, all except for the patriotic services question, <laughs> you can give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.